Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Sometimes in life, uh, helpful advice, encouragements, or warnings uh, come a little bit too late. I remember when I was in high school, uh, we were at Lake Red Rock with uh, another family uh, that we were boating with. And uh, have you ever been to Pella and Lake Red Rock? They've got a, like this cliff that's popular for jumping off of doing cliff diving, whatever. And uh, so me and my buddy, we were, we were kind of hanging out on the shoreline and we decided to climb up the side of this little cliff and, and we were sitting at the top. I don't know, we were probably 10, 10 plus feet in the air. And you look down, it's like, oh man, this thing is like 40 feet deep. I mean, we had jumped it before or whatever. And uh, right before we jump, my buddy Lucas says, hey, maybe we shouldn't dive head first. Maybe we should, like the first time, just dive, dive in with our feet first. And I said, whatever, let's just jump. So we jump at the same time. Um, <laughs> and what looked to be 40 feet deep was actually two feet deep. So the water was a little low, uh, and I had destroyed my ankle, and my buddy had like scraped up a shin, is bleeding everywhere. And you know, one of my past, one of my goals as a pastor for you guys is to make sure you're not impressed with me. And I feel like I'm off to a good start this morning. Uh, so yeah, we we like climbed back into the boat as these wounded soldiers, and and I don't remember. I, I mean, I don't, I don't remember exactly what my parents said. I was in blinding pain, but they they I think they said something to the effect of why didn't you go over and check the water depth first before you jump? Which, I mean, if they said that, I'm sure my thought was, well, it's a little late now. I've already jumped and my ankle's on fire, right? <laughs> and because I think when it, when it comes to church and coming to church, sometimes I think we, we come with the expectation that the things we're going to talk about are do this and don't do that. You know, don't, don't go down this sinful path, but instead go down this righteous path, which in a lot of ways, those sermons are necessary and we need them. That's not this morning's sermon. This morning, we're going to answer the question, what do I do when I didn't do what I was supposed to do? What do I do if I've already made the big sin? That, that path, pastor, that thing you're telling me to do, yeah, I already did it. So now what? How do God's people rightly respond to failure? Well, what Psalm 51 is going to give us is a man by the name of David who had a massive failure in his life, and we're going to see how he responds in the midst of his failure. Last week, Jake said that uh, in, in the Psalms, you've got this category called Psalms of Lament. He gave three different kinds of Lament. Last week we talked about the kind of lament uh, where you have a spiritual dryness based off of not maybe anything you've done, just the reality of living in a broken world. But this morning's a little different kind of lament. This is the kind of lament where you're maybe facing spiritual dryness because you have done something wrong. You have committed the sin. And you go, well, now what? Psalm 51 is a lament of confession. Or, or maybe the fancy church word is penitence. David's already messed up. The ship has already sailed. And we're going to see how he responds. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Psalm 51. As you turn there, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of what's going on here. We do actually know the context of what's happening in this passage. This passage might be familiar to some of you. Uh, but in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, we see the rise of King David. God's hand of blessing is clearly on this man. Uh, he takes over uh, from uh, King Saul. And as he takes over, 
the Israelites are taking ground. Things are going actually pretty well for David overall. Like he's proving to be the, the king that, that the people were hoping he would be. Everything seems to be going great. And then things get pretty dark pretty fast. We get to 2 Samuel 11. And the Bible tells us while the soldiers were out at war in battle, David stayed behind. And, and as he stayed behind, he was on his rooftop strolling when he saw this beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. Now Bathsheba already had a husband. His name was Uriah. He was a, a soldier. I didn't stop David from taking her, most likely against her will, sleeping with her, and getting her pregnant. So what does David do in the midst of all of that? Well, he tries to cover it up. He brings Uriah back from the battlefield and tries to have Uriah sleep with her to cover it all up, but Uriah won't do it. So instead, what David does is he essentially sends Uriah onto the, the battlefield and has him pretty much intentionally killed on the field and then goes and marries Bathsheba. Now, I want to state what is blatantly obvious as I unpack that narrative. This is a horrific act done by what was supposed to be a righteous man. David, a man after God's own heart, right? But in one act, he pretty much sets all 10 commandments and then some on fire. He just does what he wants. And the crazy thing is David actually, that we know, doesn't really feel bad about it. In fact, Bathsheba goes through her whole pregnancy and delivers a son into the world, and David's still not convicted. So you get to 2 Samuel 12, and a prophet by the name of Nathan approaches David and rebukes him using a parable and calls him out for the sin that he had committed. And he states that the Lord said that because of this act, the sword will never leave the house of David, and the son that was just born is actually now going to die because of David's sin. And we find that all those things come to be true. Seven days later, the son born into the world dies. Consequences to his sin. You see, the scene we're walking into as we open up Psalm 51 is very dark. It is bathed in wickedness and sin. And now all eyes are on David going, how is this guy going to respond to all of that? That's where we're at this morning. So if you have your Bibles open, I would just say keep them open. We just had the Word of God read over us, so I'm going to be jumping around a bit. Um, so keep your Bibles open, and, and we'll walk through this together. But as David starts the psalm, he's very aware of his situation. And by situation, I don't just mean with Bathsheba and Uriah. I mean his situation as he thinks about him and God. Look at verse 1. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. David knows that God is full of mercy, grace, kindness, and compassion. And David knows what he's done, so he is pleading for mercy from God because he knows that God's not only merciful, but he's also a God of justice. Read verse 4 with me, kind of the second half. It says, so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. David knows that he is a righteous judge. That's who God is. And in light of that, in verse 11, he says, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Don't leave me, God. Now, verse 11, I'll just be honest, there's a lot of theological debate on 
exactly what that verse means. We're not going to get into the weeds of that today. Uh, But I will say this. The king who was in place before David committed a pretty horrible sin as he disobeyed the Lord as well. And what happened is that after he screwed up and disobeyed, there were some pretty serious consequences. And ultimately, God kind of removed himself from Saul. And actually, as God is making his covenant with with David through Nathan in 2 Samuel 7, 15, God says, be be my faithful love, or says, but my faithful love will never leave him, David, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. So we can debate verse 11 all we want. All all I think is happening here is in a lot of ways, David's looking at what just happened at Saul and going, God, don't do to him, don't do to me what you did to him. Please show me mercy. Is pleading for mercy. He knows that God would be just and right for David to spend eternity underneath God's wrath. So he's pleading for mercy. So God, or David is appealing to God's character, but then David also unpacks who he is as a sinner. Back to verse one, blot out my rebellion, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin for I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before you. David knows that in his nature, what's just true is that he is passionately rebellious against his holy God. And this isn't a recent thing. This is from the moment his life began. Go to verse five. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. So at the core of who David is, from the moment his life began, at conception, he was made in the image of God, yes, but also he was sinful in nature. You see, this act by David against Uriah and Bathsheba is not some random accident. It was the overflow of what's been true of David all along. David sinned because he is and was a sinner. This horrible act is simply an exposure of something that was much deeper in David's heart. So David knows God is holy. He knows he is a rebellious sinner deserving God's wrath. And that is the foundation from which we read Psalm 51. David knows he needs to be forgiven and only God himself can forgive him. So that's the situation. I want to go back to the original question. How did David respond? Well, I'm going to give you four, four things this morning, four observations I made. Um, and these aren't necessarily like, here's your step-by-step, do this step, now this step to get right with God. This is just four principles that I believe should be true of us as believers as we respond to our sin. And the first one is pretty simple. David owned his sin. Let me give you a word for each of these. Own. David owned his sin. Verse 3. For I'm conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. I could have used the word confess here, but I think the word own gets more the ethos of what David is getting at in this psalm. David is calling a spade a spade. He knows that he's blown it. And it took him a year. But now he is. He's owning it. Nathan's confronted him. He's been convicted. And David doesn't point fingers at anyone else any longer. He now points all the fingers at himself and says, it's my fault. So I remember um, reading a story uh, from Jocko Willink. He's a Navy SEAL commander. He wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And in that first chapter, 
He unpacked a story that I don't think I'll ever forget. He shared a time when he was in Ramadi, Iraq. And he was leading a Navy, Navy SEAL unit, and, and they were working with the Iraqi soldiers at the time to obviously defeat the enemy that was in, in front of them. And they were in the midst of urban warfare. So they're in these neighborhoods where enemies are all over the place and bullets are flying all the time. And in the midst of that environment, a situation unfolded where the, uh, there was a SEAL team, a sniper unit, and they got boxed into this house. And as they were there, uh, one of the One of the SEAL team members saw the silhouette of what he thought was an enemy and started firing. And then that person started firing back. Well, the silhouette wasn't one of an enemy. It was actually one of a friend. It was an Iraqi soldier, but they didn't know. And before they knew it, they were just firing at each other. And by the time Jocko had got to the scene and was able to de-escalate everything, uh, one Iraqi soldier was killed and one of Jocko's Navy SEALs was wounded. The Navy SEALs call this blue on blue. This is a cardinal sin. You never do this. You never fire upon friendlies. It's unacceptable. And so the mistake had been made. And Jocko gets the email from his commanding officer and the master chief that they're on their way and they want some answers. What happened? And everyone on the team's feeling it. Everyone knows it was a blue-on-blue situation. We don't do that here. So Jocko holds a, a meeting, a debrief of what happened, and he starts looking around and asking one very important question. Whose fault was this? An Iraqi soldier spoke up and said, ask, it's my fault. I made this mistake and that mistake, and it led to this situation. Jocko said, nope. Whose fault was this? A radio man from the sniper unit piped in. He says, my fault. The communication wasn't clear on the... Jocko again, wrong. Whose fault was this? Multiple times this happens until there's silence. And Jocko says, the only one to blame for this is me. I'm the commander. I'm the leader. It was my fault. Jocko knew the seriousness of the situation. He could have passed blame a lot of different ways because other people made mistakes, but he owned it. And David does the same thing here. He knows the seriousness of the situation and his sin, and he owns it. I just want to say, just as a pastor, and knowing my own heart and people that I've been able to shepherd, this is just not our knee-jerk reaction, guys. We, we are, it's not natural for us to just point fingers at ourselves and go, it was my fault. We are quick to point fingers a lot of other places first. We'll, we'll use language and kind of act like our sin is an accident at times. I remember being SALT director and interacting with, with college guys and, and walking them through sexual purity and different things. And they'd come to me and say, Jordan, I slipped up last night and I looked at this website or whatever. I, I slipped up. And that language, guys, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like, did you, were you in your apartment and you slipped on a banana and fell on your computer and up popped the website? Like, this isn't Mario Kart, you know? Like, how did you slip up? Let's just call it what it is. You sinned. And Candale, can we just commit together to maybe stop using the accident language and just call a spade a spade and say, I sinned. I did it. So maybe, maybe we use the accident language at times I think the other times we can play the kind of the victim card. 
or it was just a, just a matter of the, the situation that I was in, circumstances. Uh, Casey and I realized this early on in our marriage that we were doing this, that sometimes we would sin against one another, and I would say things like, I, I know I sinned against you, but I, I've just been tired. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. And she would maybe say some different things. And we kind of picked up on that and said, hey, let's stop doing that. We're going we're gonna to call that out when we, when we hear that from one another. If, if I get home and it's been a long day and I'm tired, that does not justify me sinning against my wife. So I'm not the victim. I'll, I just need to own my sin. And in those situations, when I sin against my wife, here's a question. Who have I sinned against? Yes, Casey, but first and foremost, I've sinned against God. I think there's a key detail in here where I don't want you guys to miss in, in verse 4. When he says, against you and you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. David actually says something very similar after he's been confronted by Nathan in 2 Samuel 12. He responds to Nathan and says, I have sinned against the Lord. Now you might hear that and go, wait a minute, <laughs> sin against the Lord. What about Bathsheba? <laughs> you know, the one that's, that got pregnant. What about Uriah, the guy that's now dead? Or your son who also is now dead? Didn't you... What about them? Against you and you alone I've sinned. But I think what David is getting at here is, yes, he caused hurt to Bathsheba and Uriah, and he sinned against them. But I think what David has in mind here is, I have sinned first and foremost against a holy God, the final judge in his life. David blatantly broke God's commandments. And so he says, against you and you alone I have sinned. So I think the application for us there is, yes, we need to own our sin with others, but first and foremost, don't forget to own it with God himself. Bring those things to the Lord. So I want to ask a very simple question. Is there any sin in your life this morning that you need to own? Maybe you look at Psalm 51, it's, it's like looking in a mirror. And maybe there is some sexual sin in your life that you need to bring into the light. But maybe that's not it for you. For others, maybe it's you've cheated, lied, slandered, or gossiped for your own gain. Or, or maybe for others of you, it's your anger that, that just like, man, you're, you got bottled up and it exploded and your words came flying out like arrows. And maybe for some of you, there's that one sin that you've just kind of committed in your heart that I'm going to take this sin with me to my grave. And I think what Psalm 51 is telling us this morning is don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Own your sin. Bring it in front of the Lord and others. Bring it into the light. Everything you've done, God knows. I think sometimes we, we can play this almost game with God where it's, we, we think we're playing hide and go seek in the dark, but in reality, we're in a small room with no furniture and the light's on. God sees everything he knows. So our call is to own it, to bring it before him and bring it before others. So our response to failure, we own it, but it doesn't stop there. We move from own to repent. Repent. Simple definition for repent is changing the way you think. It is understanding the seriousness of your sin and how destructive it is between you and God and you and others 
changing the way you think, knowing that your actions will follow. It's a desire to walk in new ways. And this is what David meant in verse 10. So go back to the text. He says, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Create a clean heart, a new spirit, a new path, a new desire. He's changing the way he thinks about his sin. He's asking for a renewed spirit. So there's actually something very similar said in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 says this in 24, God's talking about the restoration of the, the Israelites in those people. He says, for I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I'll bring you into your own land. This is his promise. And then he says, I will also spring, sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all impurities and all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. When we are cleansed, we are, we are given a new heart. It's no longer a heart of stone, it's a heart of flesh. And that new heart brings new desires because we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to follow the commands of God. It's repentance. It's walking a new, better, and different path. And Christian, we're called to the same thing today. We are born again. We have been given the Spirit of God. So we are called to walk a path of purity and not lust. A path of peace and not anger. A path of humility and not pride. A path of generosity and not greed. We are called to be the kind of people who are the first to confess and the first to do something about it. To take our sinful path and kind of like remove it and replace it with a new and better path in our life. It's repentance. So Christian, we own our sin, we repent it. And then we receive forgiveness from our gracious Father. Listen again to some of this language. Verse 2, completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 9, turn your face away from my sins and blot out my guilt. Forgive me, cleanse me, clean me, wash me, blot out all of my guilt. David knows that his soul is a filthy garment and it, it has to be God. If anyone's going to make him whiter than snow, it has to be God. So he's saying, purify me. The way that the Old Testament priests would take hyssop, these little bunches of plants, and, and kind of break them up and sprinkle that and water on people to symbolically purify them. He's saying, purify my soul, Father. And we should have that same heart, not only to desire a change, but to ask for forgiveness. And we know, Christian, we've been offered and given forgiveness by the blood of the cross. Now, I want to ask a question I think is a fair question for Christians to ask. Why do I, if I've already been forgiven and I'm saved, why do I need to continually ask for forgiveness every time I sin? Aren't I saved? Like, I'm good, right? And I think it's good to remind you of some language. I've used this before, but I think it's helpful. It's the language of union and communion. You see, when you put your faith and trust in Christ, you have union in Christ. You are saved. You are justified. You've been brought into the family. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. You have union with him. You will be with him in eternity. So yes, union, but also 
We have our daily experiential communion that does ebb and flow as we sin and ask for forgiveness in this life. I think we know this. When we have sin in our life, our, man, our soul is just kind of like hindered. It's clouded. The joy is kind of seeped from us. So we come to the Father and ask for forgiveness, knowing that the answer will always be yes because of the cross. So do you have a regular, regular rhythm, Christian, of asking for forgiveness? In the Lord's Prayer, you know, it says, give us this day our daily bread, but it also says, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Not only daily bread, but daily forgiveness. This restores not only our communion with the Lord, but also the joy to our lives. Read verse 12 with me. Restore the, restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. He's asking for joy to be returned to him because it's been hindered by the sin that he's committed. And you know, David actually says something very similar in Psalm 32. In Psalm 32, he says, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle. When he kind of covered up his sin, for my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy on me and my strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Doesn't sound like a very joyful experience. But in verse 5 it says, Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. When you sin, yes, there is this like brokenness in your communion with God where it's hindered. It just, it's like as hot as the summer's heat. But then when you, when you receive forgiveness, there is joy that is given. And I think, I think you guys, whether you have experienced this yourself or whether you've seen other Christians walk through this, this just makes sense. There, there's those people that, man, their sin is on the table. They're dealing with their sin. It's in the light. And they're just walking with this lightness, this freedom and joy. And I'm telling you guys, I've seen the other too the people who continually try and conceal their sin. And it's almost like they're just like walking around with this ball and chain all day. Joy seeped from their life. When sin is in our life and it's not dealt with, it's hard to have joy. Now, you might ask the question, but Jordan, what if my sin was a while ago? Like it was a long time ago. Then I'd say, well, look to David. <laughs> David waited a whole year before he brought it before the Lord. So I'd say, I don't care how long it's been. Bring it in front of the Lord. Own it. Ask for forgiveness. But, but you say, but Jordan, you, you don't realize the things I've done. To which I would say, I don't think you realize what David did. He killed a man and took his wife. And it is that guy who is writing this psalm as being forgiven by God Almighty. And it would be fair of you to ask the question, how in the world is that possible? How can God forgive a guy like that? And the answer to that question is Romans 3.25. Listen to this. God presented him, Jesus Christ, as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, listen to this, in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. You see, God did not turn a blind eye to David's sin. He did not shove it into some kind of dark corner and go, we'll figure that out later. No, 
He passed over the sin and the sin, the the wrath that David deserved for his sin was executed on the son of the most high on the cross. What Jesus did on that cross is showed that God, yes, is full of both mercy and justice, both. And you go, why would God do something like that for someone like me? And I think the answer to that is found in the Jesus Storybook Bible. And it says that God loves us with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I think sometimes we as Christians forget that because we are in Christ, we have a heavenly father who loves us. He's waiting with open arms. I just think so often we neglect that reality. So I told you a story from when I was in high school. Let me give you one from when I was in middle school. Uh, I was in middle school and a buddy had come over and we were hanging out at my house and we were in the basement and one thing led to another and, uh, and we started looking at stuff we shouldn't have been looking at on, on the internet or whatever. So we were looking at pornographic images and if that wasn't dumb enough, we started to like print some of those off. And uh, we ended up eating dinner and I went off to basketball practice with my buddy Jacob and, and my dad picked me up that night and drove me home and I'll never forget this. We're sitting outside of our, our driveway, and my dad tells me that he found the pictures, and he asked me one simple question. Was this you? Did you do it? You know what I did in that moment? I lied. <laughs> Covered it up, said, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. But the evidence was clear, guys. I don't even think my siblings were in the house. I mean, it was so clear. It was me. My dad just asked the question, is it you? What do you think my dad wanted me to do in that moment? My dad, who loves me, wanted me to grieve over my sin, to own it for sure, to repent of it, and to ask for forgiveness. That's what my dad was looking for in that moment. But I lied. I covered it up. Now, if I would have owned it, would there have been consequences to my sin? Yeah, probably. Was there consequences to David's sin? Absolutely. His son died. There's always consequences to sin. Absolutely. There's ripple effects. We can't deny that. But at the same time, I know my dad. And in that moment, if I would have owned my sin, he would have shown me so much grace, forgiveness, and love because his love for me is unconditional and my identity as his son never changes. Christian, do you know your father? Do you know the love he has for you? If so, Stop running away from him when you sin and start running into your father's arms. God is not looking for you to pull up your bootstraps and fix this on your own, cover it up. He's not looking for that. What's he looking for? Verse 16 and 17. David says, you do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart. God's looking for a broken heart. 
looking to him as our only hope. If you, if you just listen to the words of David here, he is clearly broken. Like this, he's kind of messed up <laughs> because of his sin. But he's bringing it to the Lord with a broken heart. And we are called to do the same, to run to our Father's arms, even after the massive failure. So Christian, if you are a son or daughter of the Most High this morning, and you are hiding something in the dark, let today be the day where you bring it into the light. Run into the arms of your Father, full of mercy. I think some of you this morning need to be reminded, in your best moments of your Christian walk, you are a child of God. In your worst moments, in your darkest moments in your walk with God, guess what? You are a child of God. Your identity never changes and his love for you never lessens. So expose the sin in your life and let his forgiveness overwhelm you. For some of you, you've actually maybe never received that forgiveness. And you're realizing you've never done any of this. And actually, you don't rest in the arms of a loving father, but rather underneath the wrath of a holy God. And if you've never been forgiven of your sins, I just want to plead with you this morning to bring that to the foot of the cross. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jesus bled on that cross so that our sin would be wiped clean. Because he took the judgment on our behalf, you simply need to repent, own your sin, ask for forgiveness, and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Be saved. And for every person that has received that forgiveness, what's the response? It's worship. It is always worship. So check this out. The last thing we'll unpack together, verse 8. Listen to the words here. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed, you, you have crushed rejoice. Be full of joy. Listen to verse 14 and 15. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed, God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. David's response after rightly dealing with his sin is to go before the Lord in worship and in praise. His sins have been removed. They've been made whiter than snow. So his only genuine response is one of praise. And as believers, the same should be true of us. As we look at the blood-soaked cross, our only response should be praise the one who paid my debt in my place and rose from that grave. We sing those things, but David doesn't even stop there. He continues in verse 13, then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. So yes, it, it's, it's joyful worship, realizing God's done what only he can do, but, but it's, it's not done even there. He continues to tell other people. His restoration now is healing others. This is the beautiful end to David's journey with this sin. But the way we get there is starting by responding rightly to our sin. Can okay, church, are we going to be a people that is brokenhearted over our sin? Are we going to be a people that owns our sin and runs to the Father when we blow it? I pray we'd be this kind of people. It's the kind of response that not only honors God, but helps us to be a bright light in the world we live in today. So let me pray for us.
Jesus, the only way that any of this is possible is by the blood of your cross. We deserve the wrath of God for our sin. Not just this sin or that sin, but the reality that we are sinners. From the moment of conception, sinners underneath the wrath of a holy God. But Jesus, you came, you went to that cross, you died in our place, you rose from the grave. And this morning we sing to the one who has paid our debt and made us right with God. We had no business being made whiter than snow. Our scarlet filled lives deserve something much different, but in your mercy and in your grace, we've been offered forgiveness. It's been blotted out. The slate has been wiped clean. And so Jesus, in light of that reality, we worship you this morning. But I do pray, if there's anyone here this morning that has undealt with sin, Lord, that they would bring it to the light, that they would own it with you this morning. And if there's anyone else they need to bring in, that they would bring it to the light with those people. Lord, I pray that today, this week, would be a week of revival in a sense for our church, that there would be a purging of sin, a, a life of repentance and looking towards you, Jesus. So as we do that, knowing our sins have been forgiven, Jesus, we worship you this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.